Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of conversations with spiritually awakening people. We've done about 565 of them now. If this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, please go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and look under the past interviews menu. This program is made possible through the support of appreciative listeners and viewers, so if you appreciate it and would like to help support it, there's a PayPal button on every page of the site, and if you don't like to use PayPal, there's also a donations page that explains how to send a check or whatever. My guest today is Helen Hamilton. Welcome, Helen. Hi, Rick. Helen is a spiritual teacher based in West Yorkshire in the north of England and is a mother of four. After struggling through her own awakening several years ago, Helen was driven by the urge to simplify awakening for all beings and to share the essential pointings that allow us to overcome common challenges along the path to freedom. Her teaching style is direct and uncompromising in its insistence that we are already that we already are what we are searching for, and yet her teaching encompasses compassion and wisdom to help us dissolve our ego with love and understanding. She teaches worldwide and holds regular satsangs online and other events, probably in person when there's not a pandemic going on, right? Yeah. (laughs) All right. So Helen has done this before in other interviews, but I'd like to just have her walk us through her life a little bit, you know, some of the steps that she's taken. I listened to an interview the other day in which she did that. And one thing that jumped out at me, Helen, which will get us started, is that when you were a little girl, you were seeing auras and stuff like that. And, mm-hmm. you know, it just kind of came naturally and you, you assumed for a while that mm-hmm. that's what everyone saw. And then eventually you realized they didn't. I think this is part of a pattern, perhaps, with people I've interviewed who obviously they, later in life they've had some sort of spiritual awakening, which is why I'm interviewing them. But early in life, they were a little bit unusual as a child, more sensitive, more aware. Some were even very consciously in a state of unity, which they then began to lose as they got into their teenage years. My theory about it, which of course is only a theory, is that we live through many lifetimes and we all come into this life at a certain level of evolution based upon what has been developed in previous lifetimes. And if a child is seeing auras or feels like they're in unity consciousness, they're probably a pretty highly evolved soul having evolved quite a bit in the past, even though they might go into a muddled phase as a teenager, as most teenagers do. Eventually, the urge to sort of wake up gets really strong with them, much stronger than it does with the average person, and, you know, won't let them rest until some kind of resolution. Well, you just described my life, actually, yeah. Yeah. It wasn't any unity consciousness growing up, but it was quite the opposite, actually. There was just this constant fear uh, dread, just this feeling that something was wrong. I, I couldn't put my finger on it. It was just always in the background there. Seeing auras and everything else, it just kind of added to that, that I was different from everyone else. I didn't fit in. All of that just accumulated into a very awkward teenager and uh, and then into trying to be normal, like we all do, I guess, at that point, just trying to fit in with life. All of that kind of seeing auras went away for a while. I think I must have managed to stop it somehow without realizing, just did, wanting to. Did it come back? Yeah. It did. 
after my uh, third child was born, my son, I went into a, a very deep depression and um, there was no outer worldly reason for it. I had a decent life. I had three kids then and it was just this hole inside that had been there forever that just kind of <laughs> probably a really familiar story, but... Well, do you think it, it was like bigger. normal postpartum depression or it had some kind of spiritual dimension to it? Oh, probably both. The official reason was postpartum, but it had been brewing for a while. And uh, yeah. I guess I'd always thought that having children would, would fill that hole. And it, and it did for a while. So I began drinking and uh, towards my late 20s, just could have easily become an alcoholic, except for the fact that I discovered meditation and kind of got addicted to the bliss that comes realized that's what I've been looking for in a way. So the addiction swap from that to trying to meditate as much as possible. That's good. If you're going to be addicted to something, better (laughs) meditation than alcohol. (laughs) It could have easily gone that way, definitely. What made you aware that meditation even existed or was something you could do? I got really interested in brain chemistry with the depression because I was taking at the time antidepressants and they helped, but I was kind of, uh, I read something somewhere about meditation affecting the brain and uh, serotonin levels. So I kind of got interested in that and then, okay, let me try some of this meditation. And I tried some breathing stuff and all of that uh, and, you know, quite, quite nice. But then my friend gave me this meditation and said, uh, you just sit and you look at your third eye. And I'm like, what's a third eye, you know? <laughs> and I was just gone. Like I experienced something that I couldn't explain just didn't want to come back at all so it became probably like everyone it it swung that way and uh, just spent as much time as I could in my bedroom with my eyes closed that's another thing I've noticed you know people who were kind of unusual as kids very often later on when they learn to meditate they just boom you know they really take off right from the start they take it like a duck to water. They don't like have to like sit there and struggle or figure out how to do it or anything else. It's kind of like natural. I still had to go through that. I definitely had to. Um, but but I knew um, from that first time I'd had that taster, you know, and then because my mind rebelled like everyone does, I just felt like I'd found what I was looking for. I didn't realize I'd been looking my entire life until I felt this bliss and but I had to battle through the mind, you know, bringing attention back like everyone does to that. And no clue what I was doing, but just really enjoying it. And like you say, it was healthier than alcohol at the time. So I was just kind of glad that I wasn't going down that route anymore. Yeah, yeah. Did you ever get any formal instruction in meditation or you just did it your own way? I did uh, join as a teacher in California, actually, I used to go online with them. Um, to kind of uh, got into uh, Shaktipat meditation and you know Kundalini and all of those things and could reach some amazing states in meditation, just mind-blowing bliss and ecstasy. But when it's time to get up and go back to cook dinner or whatever, there's just this fear again that was constantly present and a lot of anger and, again, this feeling that something was wrong. It polarized my life even more than I was trying to get back to that feeling and trying to avoid life. I heard you say in that other interview that, you know, you had had a fairly successful life in many respects. You'd been into herbal life or something like that and, yeah. and done quite well with that, became some kind of a gold crown, whatever they call them. <laughs> <or something. laughs> 
and some I'm other always things. Obsessive yeah. about everything I do. Tried all these different things, you know, through 150% in, and and then uh, kind of realised it was this is where I wanted to put it, you know, in the truth. But yeah, yeah I'm pretty obsessive myself. Welcome to the club. <laughs> I think it's a prerequisite, right, for waking up <laughs> <laughs> to be a little obsessed. Yeah, I always say OCD can be your friend. Yes, <laughs> we're properly placed at least. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You got to admit, I mean, guys like the Buddha and Ramana and others—they were pretty obsessive, yeah. just adamantly, you know, intent on what they were seeking. Yeah, and it's always viewed as such a bad thing, obsession, but it, it's it's really just devotion, isn't it? We're talking about there. Yeah, you know, it's a fine line between obsession and devotion. And again, it depends on what you're obsessed to. Like if you're obsessed to like spraying the doorknobs with disinfectant every time you go in and out of the house, that, that could be an aberration. But if it's on something laudable, something really worthwhile, yeah. then it can have its value. Think about people who, I mean, we're putting a positive spin on, on obsession, but think about people who don't actually take anything very seriously and just drift around and can't hold a job, can't stay in a relationship, just don't stick with anything. It's, it's kind of wishy-washy. They get wishy-washy yeah. results. Yeah. I think for me, this is uh, the first time I really found what I was, where I could put my obsession where it would be a positive thing rather than trying to control my life or manipulate other people like we all do. You know, it's, it's okay, this is something worthwhile yeah. uh, investing in. So we don't have to go through all the business ventures and stuff that you did, but in terms of once you actually got on the spiritual path, started meditating, and then take us through some of the stages of growth you underwent with that. Like, what are some of the things you explored, some of the teachers, some of the teachings, some of the practices? What kind of results did you get from different things as you went along? That could be a whole hour in itself. I think I kind of went on this without realizing the study of all the major pathways I could find, you know, and all the the religious for a while I studied the Christian mystics and, you know, wanted to know what made them tick, so to speak. St. John of the Cross, St. Teresa, um, and then, you know, the Yoga Sutras of uh, Patanjali, um, pretty much every uh, every pathway I kind of stuck my nose into. And I wanted to find that it was, what what is it that's common between them all? Because, he, you know, like had the Bible and, you know, read all these different texts and there was this common thread running through them all. And I just loved the way truth expressed itself. Um, I was trying to uh, find something, I don't know, just kind of researching for years and tried about 64 different types of meditation. <laughs> Such a precise least, number. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it might be a slight exaggeration, but yeah, I was getting close to that. I tried all the new age stuff. I tried hypnosis. I tried rewriting my subconscious beliefs. I tried positive affirmations because I was aware that there was thoughts going on that were, you know, creating experiences. So I tried the law of attraction and pretty much everything I tried just made it worse in my life. My outer world got worse. And yet when you meditated, you were still experiencing bliss? Yeah, absolutely. And it was just getting stronger and stronger. That's interesting. Was, uh, yeah, and I was kind of aware, I was almost addicted to it, but I just couldn't stop doing that. Eventually this realisation that it wasn't getting me anywhere, I mean, it wasn't changing me. I was still really divided inside, could have this beautiful experience and then this 
total avoidance of life, wanting to try to get away from the mundane life. Yeah, it was, maybe that was the problem. Maybe you had this attitude of wanting to get away from the mundane life, and that's why mm-hmm. life wasn't working out. Because I mean, when yeah, I absolutely. when I learned to meditate, I not only experienced the inner bliss, but my whole outer life changed for the better quite dramatically. But I wasn't trying to get away from it. You know, I was like into a rock band. I was a drummer, and I got into school, and you know, I was doing all this stuff that I hadn't had the coherence to do beforehand. But when you said at the start about certain beings having a head start in this life or being more advanced in this life. I think my challenge in this life was to learn to enjoy this life uh-huh. and not to try to escape. I was always trying to get away somewhere else. Maybe you had had recluse lifetimes where you sat in a cave or something. <laughs> Probably, yeah. yeah. Just, and it's like, okay, now can you do the school run? Can you do the food shop? Can you do all of those things actually function in life? That would seem to be the challenge. Yeah, it's true. It's a little silly of me to say, well, this is what happened to me because everybody's situation is different and there are obviously certain universal patterns, but we all have our unique path to walk. Yeah, absolutely. How old is your youngest uh, child now? She's just turned 13 now. So Okay. You're still a active She's still mother. at home, yeah. The, the youngest of the four is still at home. The rest are off university and stuff. Well, having four kids will keep you grounded. It certainly did. It certainly did. Have any of your children shown an interest in spirituality? My youngest one, I mean, they all did in their own way, but they definitely are now going through that same phase that we all go through, which is mom's a weirdo, mom does this weird stuff for for work, you know, so it's more like I can't just get a normal job moment, you know, so they they, they do in their own way, but they're at that age where they just want to, you know, they don't want a strange mom that's doing something like satsang. Right. And if you had a normal job, they'd probably be saying, oh, you're so ordinary, you know, you just, yeah. just do this. <laughs> why don't you do something yeah. weird? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I was like that at that age as well. You're exploring your separate sense of self, aren't you? Having yeah. fun. <laughs> okay. So what turned it around for you? So, you know, you're having this deep inner bliss, but the outer life is not so good. How did you finally break through? I just got so desperate, I think. I just, I couldn't stand the, the swinging between. Like, you know, I hear it from a lot of people. It's just heavenly experiences and then this complete opposite. And I realized after about seven years, I think, that I must still be in duality uh, somehow, still looking for truth as an experience rather than a constant thing. I was reading some book at the time, and it just said, truth is not an experience. I think it was the I am that at the time. And uh, it just hit me. It was like, oh, okay, this must be something further than I've seen uh, and something deeper. And then I, I just kind of got excited again because I felt like I had a way forward. I'd been stuck for a long time. I guess everybody that is listening to this understands what we mean by that. Truth is not an experience. You want to elaborate on it a bit just to clarify the point? It's a very common mistake we all make I think isn't it because we're taught to value experience uh, as a separate being as a me here and what I'm experiencing and uh, you know we get into a nice state in meditation uh, which is blissful and we've kind of all heard that truth can come with that bliss and that peace and that love so it's easy to make that mistake to go well this must be it then and it might be quite some time before we realize that it doesn't last it's not a constant thing it's not stable and I'm also experiencing the opposite still, sort of fear and unworthiness and all that stuff that comes from feeling separate. 
I think it takes us a while to even realise there is something beyond experience, something that's constant. We're not taught to look in that way. Just to um, play devil's advocate a little bit, it's not wrong in any sense that meditation can be blissful. And actually, it can be transformative. So you're sitting there in this deep, beautiful, blissful state, and your physiology, your brain chemistry and structure and all this stuff is actually getting changed in various yeah. subtle ways. And there's been a lot of studies on this stuff. So you're kind of fine-tuning the instrument. But obviously, you can't live life in a, in a meditative state, eyes closed, you know, hardly breathing or anything. You have to integrate that into yeah. all phases of life. And that's what was missing for me and that, that integration and uh, the desire to stay in that feeling just became so strong. It's like, okay, how do I, how do I live this when I'm doing a school run? And that, that led to a, a kind of discovery of the more direct teachings, you know, the sort of non-dual teachings. By school run, uh, I think you mean like taking your daughter to school, right? And doing all the usual yeah, yeah. mom stuff, that kind of all thing. All of that, yeah. yeah. And running a business and, you know, all of that that comes with life, whatever our particular life is. One analogy I find helpful is like, you know, you take a shower in the morning and then you go through your day and you don't stay any cleaner by remembering the shower. Thinking, oh, that was such a good shower. I got so clean. I better hold on to my cleanliness. (laughs) You just, uh, you know, you just forget about it and go through your day. But you have there the shower has had an influence which carries through the day. So like that, you meditate in the morning if if you do and, and then you. You can forget about it and just go through your day, engage in what needs to be done. But there will be a lingering influence, but it's not by virtue of remembering what happened yeah. in the morning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which I think is what I was trying to do, you know. You're trying uh, to hold on to it while you're... Yeah, yeah, very much like my life depended on it or something. Uh-huh. So. Yeah, that doesn't work. Yeah, I found that out eventually. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Maybe I'm skipping ahead. If so, fill in the gaps. But uh, you had a rather pivotal moment when you went down to see Adyashanti in London? I've been studying the sort of non-dual teachings for a while and to various teachers like um, Adyashanti and I could speak it all, I could sound awake like a lot of people can, but I just sat in that room and uh, there was just all this love. It just felt like it was been poured down through the top of my head and it was just filling off my entire being and I was just crying for about five hours after that and uh, it just became... It's like I'd just been waiting. I mean, you hear the old, um, you know, the dry wood and the fire, the flame, and it was just exactly like that. I was just completely ready to, I don't know, must have been very dry wood, and it just went yeah. up in flames. Ready to pop. It became a very real thing, very yeah. lived thing. And it might have been Rupert Spirer or, you know, somebody else that you went to visit, right. but I think your time had come. Definitely. The desire was just so strong at that point to live it. I didn't just want to read about it anymore or or just experience it I wanted to to live it and it was like the only thing that was important left in life really Mm. and that's important too you mentioned the yoga sutras there's a line in the yoga sutras where Patanjali talks about Mm. yogis of varying degrees of intensity you know mild medium and and he, he talks about yogis who have vehement intensity in terms of their desire for liberation it comes more quickly yeah at that point, I was pretty desperate before that. It was, uh, had um, a couple of times just sitting on my knees in my bedroom praying, help, <laughs> just help, I can't, I can't live like this anymore. 
course, that prayer was answered, but not in the way I expected. Seek and you shall find, knock on the door, shall be opened. Yeah. Do you ever advise people to, in some way, intensify their desire for enlightenment, or, or do you just, if it happens, it happens? I think it's something that just builds on its own, doesn't it? And I think if we find our way to a non-dual path, however we've got there, our very direct teaching is pretty much already on fire in someone. It's usually just I found the self-doubt that's in that person that needs to be addressed, that they don't feel it can happen for them inside. That's a big one. In fact, that was one of the main reasons I started this show, because you know I live in a town where several thousand people meditate, and people were naturally having awakenings. And they would sometimes tell their friends, and the friends would scoff at them, and they, they'd doubt it. They'd say, well, nothing special about you, you know? <laughs> you could, it couldn't be happening to you. You look ordinary. And so I thought, I'm hearing both sides of this. I think I'll start an interview show where I talk to these people and their friends can see that it is happening to a number of people and they're ordinary. I mean, that's the byline of this show is conversations with ordinary spiritually awakening people. And that will instill greater confidence in them. It could happen to them too. Yeah, the humanity has been living the effect of the belief that it only happens to one or two people in a generation and they've got to be some superhuman to have it happen or have the right karma or the right lifetime and all of that. Yeah. And uh, it's time to turn that around, I really feel. And maybe there have been ages where that was true, and that's why we have that belief. But I don't think this is any longer such an age. Yeah, well, especially with the internet and yeah. uh, all the variety of teachings that you can get. Uh, it just isn't, wasn't like that before, was it? You'd have to give up everything in your life and go totally. find a teacher and stay with them and... And most people just couldn't do that. Yeah. Well, look at you. I mean, you, you raised four kids. Meanwhile, you spent a lot of time on the Internet looking at teachings and listening to teachers and so on. And it was fruitful. That's cool. I just kept remembering, which is kind of the example I always use, that if I am that already, as the sages have said, I must be able to realize it. Yeah. Despite what my mind says. How can you be difficult to yourself? Yeah. I mean, if you had to turn into something or change something, then you could get it wrong or it could take a while. And I really experienced that for a long time, thinking I had to become this. And then it, I just began to get clear that that wasn't working. And what if I already am this? Then it's just allowing it to come from the inside out then. That's a different process, much easier. Yeah, I heard you recommend contemplation in one of your videos or one of your talks. Maybe that's what you mean by that. Would that be an example? Like you hear the understanding that, well, I already am this, but you don't just say, oh, that's interesting and go on to the next thing. You actually go deep with that. You contemplate it. You take it to heart. You, you dwell on it until it becomes more of a living reality. Yeah, it's a, a mixture of kind of self-inquiry and contemplation where really all that has to be done is to undo the beliefs that people are experiencing you know, the self is infinitely powerful. So if I feel I'm not good enough to awaken, I'm going to have to keep experiencing that. Or if um, I feel a lot of fear or, you know, if I have a deep-seated feeling that I can't get what I want and what I really want is awakening, I have to keep experiencing that not occurring, keep failing at awakening. So we'd use a contemplative technique to kind of undo these beliefs. And when those strong tendency to go with these thoughts has disappeared then what remains is peace underneath and uh, realization kind of just happens then so you think that just the dwelling on 
that idea that what you are is already peace in some way dispels the doubts that you are, that if, if you just dwell on it deeply and persistently enough, it'll dissipate that fog of doubt? Look, I kind of realized that all these problems in my mind was telling me that I'm not good enough and I'm not, I'm not going to be able to wake up and can't find peace. All of that was only true if I was a separate being. And when I held all that up against what I've been reading and all these scriptures and listening to from all these teachers, that stuff can't be true because we just automatically believe that what the mind's saying, that I'm not good enough and uh, it's never going to happen for me and, <laughs> you know, all of that. Yeah. It's, yeah. So it's, it's just got to a point where, okay, if I already am that, what's left of these obstructions is still left and they, it just all fell away then. I still had to you know, do the meditation and everything, but it was easier. From yeah, there. that's great. I think I'm glad you're making this point. I think it's an important point. And traditionally, it's actually a, a thing. If uh, There's even a Sanskrit name for it. I forget it, what it is. But, you know, they emphasize several different legs to the table. There's a meditation practice of some sort, and then there's this intellectual inquiry, which helps to remove doubts. In some cases, you have a a guru or a teacher who can help you remove those doubts. You can express the doubts and he'll say, no, this, this. And uh, obviously reading of various scriptures and, and books that present things clearly. So it's not all just one thing or the other. In fact, there's other legs to the table, such as devotion and ethical practice and ethical yeah. guidelines and all kinds of things, which taken together makes it much more likely that one will gain realization. Yeah. If you're only meditating and you're not you've not got any technique to deal with what that brings up you know the more you see what you actually are what you really are the more everything from the egoic sense of self is going to come up to be looked at and if you don't have a technique to deal with that such as contemplation or whichever way we're doing that then you're going to have this polarized life like I was like you were saying yeah yeah and it needs to be both um and usually find some mixture of self-inquiry meditation contemplation and devotion, as you said, learning to trust your own judgment as well, your own inner guidance as well as to what's right for you. All of that is important. That's good. Yeah, so it's kind of a holistic, well-rounded approach. And also, I mentioned the ethical thing. I live in a town, as I said, where a lot of people meditate. And I've seen cases where people were meditating regularly and diligently, but then engaging in really unethical business practices and mm. ripping people off in, in various ways. And there was even a, an investment company here that was high-pressuring little old ladies out of their life savings and to, to put them into some risky commodities thing. That ended up getting raided by the, the feds and going under that business. <laughs> so I really questioned the dichotomy that, that sometimes people live between this higher ideal of spirituality and the things they do in their lives. Yeah, by, by the fruits you shall know them, yeah, as good Christ point. said. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you can't hide. Your actions are always going to come from what you are aligned with inside, and you can't, um, you can't get away from that. Yeah. And if you persist in trying to behave that way, you undermine your spiritual developments, like trying to fill the bathtub but not plugging the, the drain so the water just drains out as fast as it pours in. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> good analogy. On your website, you use the terms full enlightenment and full liberation, and I want to talk about that a little bit. I'm actually a little squeamish about using the word enlightenment at all because it has this superlative 
<laughs> static connotation, you know? It almost sounds like saying full education, like, okay, I'm educated now, can't learn anything more. And I've heard you yourself say that, well, you're, you're deepening, you're growing, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's an ever unfolding thing. Who knows how far it goes? So how do you reconcile your use of those terms with, with that? For me, there was, you know, ever deepening seeing that I'm not a separate being. And that became just so clear that I couldn't seem to think in terms of being a separate being anymore. But there is also this ongoing um, unfolding in the body and mind, uh, deepening that's just never ending and, in fact, speeding up, you know, becoming. Uh, how the self does that, I have no idea. How does it be absolutely what it is and somehow keep evolving at the same time? But, but that's that's the experience that's going on still for me. Of course, I did what everybody does, which is, you know, have this big experience and go, right, I've seen it now, that's it. I'm there now. And after about two weeks of denying the existence of the relative world, I started to really suffer again. And I kind of hang on. And there must be more to see. You know, every time I started suffering again, I realized there must be more to to see. And then it became clearer, rather, that the deepest seeing is going to also include the relative world. The sense of duality is not a mistake or an accident. It, it's there for a reason. It's a sense. It's not actual duality, but, but that needs to be included inside are seeing. Yeah. You sent me two books. One was about dissolving the ego and the other was reality. Uh, reality check. Reality check. And the reality <laughs> check, I, I recently took some classes with Swami Sarvapriyananda about the Manduku Upanishad and Gaudapada's commentary on that. And your reality check book reminded me very much of that because it, it sort of really emphasized that, well, ultimately there is no relative creation. Nothing ever happened. Nothing really ever manifested. And that's true in, in a way. But there's a term that uh, Swami brought out in that class, which is a traditional Vedanta term mm -hmm. of um, Vyavaharaka Satyam, which means transactional reality. He used the analogy, which I've used many times in these interviews, of this used traditionally in Vedanta, of a, a room full of clay pots, let's say. And you, you come into the room and you could say, there are no pots, it's only clay. And you mm -hmm. would be right, actually, but only partially right, because... The clay has taken the form of pots, and the pots have a function, and you can use them, and you, may, you might need them. I think we could use that as an analogy for what you just said about you can't ignore the relative creation. You can't say it doesn't exist. Uh, on some level, you may be right, but it's not the total picture. I've come across many people trying to deny their humanity. Only the formlessness is, which is ultimately true, but that formlessness is appearing as a human being. Yeah. It's showing up as a mother or a daughter or a husband or a wife. That has to be embraced as well. How it's appearing as your life has to be re-embraced. And that's uh, pretty much what I spend most of my time working on with people because there's a lot more people having a seeing that, that the formlessness is what is real, the silence. And then there's this kind of aversion to, when we think in terms of egoic sense of self, it's still thinking in either or all terms. So it says, okay, form is unreal and formless is real but the form is the formless so there's got to be this reintegration of, of all of it eventually sure. well there's a simple test although i wouldn't advocate your uh, advising it because you might get sued but if you think that absolutely the, the the relative creation is totally unreal test it by stepping in front of a bus and see <laughs> yeah, let's not do that <laughs> see how that goes theoretically we can see that one yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, well, like, or exactly, even by stubbing your toe if I walk into this wall here, it's going to hurt. 
Right. So it's kind of a both and thing. Do you have a background in science? I have um, a chemistry uh, with biochemistry degree that I did. So I kind of had an interest in that. And I really got into quantum physics, you know, when I was searching in that searching phase, I suppose, like most of us do. So, yeah, kind of an interest in science. Yeah, I picked that up um, from your reality check book because you did a nice analysis of how we can sort of go smaller and smaller and smaller in terms of relative creation and eventually get down to a level at which there is no materiality. You know, I've gone through that thought process many times myself. But again, you could say on the level of quarks, for instance, that there are no atoms, there are no molecules, there are no bones, there are no cows or anything. But then you're sort of neglecting these other levels of, we could say, excitation or, or manifestation. And that's back, right back to what you're saying about the, the deepest seeing is, is that it's none of these levels and it's all these levels at the same time. Yeah. You can't say in the end which one it is. You can't say neither way of seeing it is more right than anyone else. Yeah, I agree. So yeah. this is Robert from Tunis, which is the capital of Tunisia. He said, could you offer some advice for obsessive thoughts, especially regarding other people? Thank you. If we look at why the mind is thinking, that was a key thing for me. Like There's this obsessive regurgitation of thoughts about other things and other beings. And it became clear that if I looked at why the mind is thinking, what's the fuel, what's the source of the thought stream, that would be the only kind of permanent way to undercut that, to undermine that. Instead of trying to do something with the mind directly, you know, look at what's uh, sustaining the thought stream and that is really the sense that there are other beings and other people there and that I'm only in one location I'm a separate being here everyone else is other than me as I began to look at this it just became clearer that the more I think about other beings the more separate they're going to seem to me the more separate they seem to me the more I'm going to think about them and, and that is the cycle of illusion I began to sit with this question, is it, is it really true that there are any other beings? I felt absolutely crazy when I started with it because of like mind saying, well, of course there is. But it just began to, through contemplation, learning that technique to slow the mind down and to realize if I focus only on the appearance of things, you know, our egoic sense of self, is always judging things based on how they appear to be because it's formed from this, I guess you'd call it animalistic brain that had to make a quick decision about whether to run away from something or run towards it, you know, when we're Neanderthals. So if we're still judging everything from that perspective without realising, it's not wrong, but everyone is always going to seem different. There is going to seem like there's billions of beings rather than just one. So if we begin to look at the essence of that, you know, through a self-inquiry. For me, it was a combination of self-inquiry. Well, if I'm not a separate being, if I can't find a separate being when I look, is there really any other beings out there? Or is it the same one being? And then this question, the contemplated question, when I asked this question, is it really true there are other beings? More and more, there was just silence as an answer and mind was, would go quiet. So it was a combination of those that I used to, to get around this. Again, not denying that there always seems to be this relative world of other beings. I suppose we could expand Robert's question to ask about, you know, what if somebody is obsessed with food or with drugs or with sex or, you know, with any of the things that people get obsessed about? How can one 
uproot that tendency? It's a good question. That is uh, looking at really why there is obsession with that thing. So if I'm overeating or indulging in something or, you know, did this with um, alcohol for myself, what what is it giving me that I don't feel I can get without it? You know, what is the overindulgence giving me? And it was usually some sense of being able to get away from the mind or some temporary lack of suffering or comfort. Or We're all looking for a few things. We're generally looking for approval uh, to feel safe to feel accepted, all of that. Um, and, and we're using these things to get that, a sense of comfort perhaps. And when we really look at why we're doing that thing, what's the motivation behind it, then we can start to then ask, well, is that is it really actually true that it's not here already? My, my very going outside for it, it is reinforcing the idea I can't have it from inside mm. and sort of switching over course it's not wrong to want those things but how you know what's the most efficient way to feel safe to feel loved to feel approved of all of that yeah and perhaps the common denominator of all those things that we crave is happiness itself we want love approval gratifications of various kinds because they bring some happiness and we have a natural innate desire or tendency to seek greater happiness yeah, and I got in that stuck in that loop myself with awakening. I want awakening because it's going to make me feel better, and peaceful, and safe, and all of that. But all the time, I was denying then and experiencing that I don't have it, I don't feel it, I don't feel peaceful, and I had to eventually let that go. This was the integration, right back to the integration we were mm. talking about. Well, is it really missing actually, or am I just experiencing the thought that it's missing? This peace, this security, this approval whatever it is that we're looking for and then it i sort of made an effort to look see was let me see if it's already here let me see i kind of explored uh byron katie's work for a while and you know who would you be without this question was, was quite pivotal for me and then okay well is it already here and i just haven't allowed it to come forth to manifest yeah if we take an extreme example there are people who are psychologically disturbed, you know, who are definitely not experiencing peace. And you can't just say to them, you know, uh, peace is already here, right? You were kind of on the verge of really getting it clearly, but some people have many more layers of stuff covering it up. So there has to be some kind of a step-by-step progression, does there not, to greater and greater clarity to the point where it can be seen more directly? Yeah, most people... um have to start with some uh, meditation practice, as we were saying before, and there's usually some feeling and letting go of a lot of emotion, emotional charge that builds up in us as human beings. And then it tends to be after that, as most of that emotional backlog has dissipated, then there is opportunity there to kind of inquire a bit deeper and, and to look at that. That's why I'm kind of so passionate about contemplation, because it it gives that openness for the emotions to be felt we're not suppressing when we're asking a question. We're not. We're either assuming a thought to be true or, or we're asking if it's true. And in contemplation, there's an openness to the question. To feel whatever we're feeling, to be whatever we are in that moment, but also to see if there's a deeper experience. We're not denying how we're feeling right now. We're just seeing if there's more to it than we've recognized. That's good. I'm reminded again of the traditional path, which 
usually advocates different strokes for different folks. If your mind is too agitated to meditate, for instance, you might be advised to just engage in some kind of selfless service, some seva, you know, where you're just... Or using, some mantra. Or yeah, something. or some mantra practice, or you know, there's different stages. Like Ramana, for instance, had about 10 or 12 main teachings that he offered people according to their situation, but he's always referred to as just advocating self-inquiry, but he actually stepped it down if he felt a person wasn't capable of self-inquiry at that stage to something they could do. Yeah, exactly. And he said like silence was his highest teaching, but then if he couldn't do that uh, self-inquiry, yeah. he couldn't do that meditation, I think it was. And then if you can't do that mantra, and then if you can't do that selfless service in some way, yeah, and there's nothing lesser about any of those things. It's just like, well, there's that verse in the Gita, because you can perform it, your own dharma, the lesser in merit, is better than the dharma of another. It's like the third grade in school is not inferior to postgraduate work. If you try studying postgraduate calculus or something in the third grade, you're just going to be frustrated. But you could get there. You just have to take the necessary steps. And you've got to meet someone where they are. There's no point saying, okay, let's do some self-inquiry if they just can't even sit still because they're so agitated. Yeah. We've all had a lot of time believing we're a separate being and it's created all this tension inside the body that needs to be looked at however we're going to do that. There's no spiritual teaching, I guess, that is 100% effective for everyone all the time and it's really what, what that person needs at that moment. Yeah, in your book, your other book, um, Dissolving the Ego, you bring out a bunch of different practices one could do, and I think we'll have a chance to talk about those. But in every one, you bring up like, okay, here's what the resistance might be at this stage. Mm -hmm. You know, you try to do this and some resistance bubbles up. What you just said reminded me of that because there are barriers to be cleared away, and we may experience some sense of resistance in the clearing of them. Absolutely. And uh, our egoic sense of self is always trying to keep things the same. It doesn't, that resistance is there to, to keep us safe. It mm -hmm. thinks that's how it's going to keep us safe. So if we just expect that there's going to be resistance to it, you know, there's this myth in our minds somewhere, isn't there, that the Buddha, you know, that somehow we can all be like the Buddha and just sit down under a tree for 40 hours and meditate. And I'm sure he didn't even start off like that. He must have gone through the same process. Oh, wandering yeah. attention and not being able to sit still and restlessness and all that comes with that. And even before his final enlightenment, he got assailed by the demon Mara who threw everything in the book at him, yeah. trying to sort of dissuade him from that breakthrough. But he yeah. just kind of powered through. Yeah, and we very literally have that, don't we? We're sitting in a meditation seat and we've just got that feeling, I just don't want to do this today. I don't want to do it. I'd rather be watching something on Netflix. Yeah. So there's something to be said for regularity. If you have a practice, just do it and don't make excuses for, oh, I think I'll just get up and do something else now. Sorry, just don't beat yourself up. If you can only do five minutes, that's perfect. Start yeah. from there. Yeah, good. And that brings up a good point too, which is that I've seen cases where people just say, all right, I am just going to enlightenment or bust right now. I'm just going to sit here and meditate until my head explodes. And sometimes it does, but not in a good way. You know, so <laughs> yeah. you that's one of the reasons yeah, I, I, moved away from first. The, I moved away from the Kundalini path because uh, there was a lot of misinformation in that and saw some quite damaged people yeah, yeah. from doing too much meditation without any, I suppose you find it in any path at all, not just that, but 
properly done, it's fine. But there's all this stuff coming up and they're not looking at it. They're not dealing with it. They're not processing it. Yeah, this is a good point. The spiritual path is very rewarding, but at the same time, it is actually kind of a razor's edge. Yes. (laughs) And it has to be taken with a certain degree of seriousness and caution and prudence and carefulness and, and all that, because you can actually get yourself in worse trouble. It's one of those things, isn't it? I think we all end up needing some guidance from someone at some point along the path, but how do you know that you've found the right person? How do you know this person can help you? Inevitably, like in any uh, thing we're trying to achieve in life, there's going to be those that are trying to mislead us. And that's so why I'm kind of always saying, you know, if what any teacher or teaching is saying is true, it must be able to be experienced to some degree at least to prove it in your own experience. What are some criteria that you would outline in terms of evaluating a teacher? Firstly, how how you feel when you're with that teacher, whether online or, or in person. Are you experiencing something deeper than you normally experience? When you apply that teaching to the best of your ability in that moment, is your life getting better, basically, in inner and outer, as we were saying before? Your own intuition is going to tell you more about that being than any amount of words will. And just to, you know, always the safety of if they ever tell you to do something that you don't agree with, no matter how enlightened they may seem, then you don't do it. If it doesn't feel good to you, you you don't do it. I would add to that that they should be walking their talk. Yeah, absolutely. They should be someone that you would actually want to be like. Obviously, we all have our own personalities, but if if they're a raging alcoholic and they're sitting up on stage (laughs) drinking the entire time they're talking, like Trogam Champa Rinpoche, who died in his 40s of alcoholism, then maybe, I mean, there are people... still a little more work to do. Yeah. 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 They should be, again, back to by the fruits, you'll know them, you know, you'll find... uh, they should be able to live what they're talking about. It should be coming from their own direct experience. Yeah, yeah that's a good point. That applies to any field. I mean, you wouldn't go to uh, study physics with somebody who obviously didn't understand it or whose life as a physicist was a total failure or something. So I guess I could turn this into a question is, what would you consider to be the characteristics of enlightenment, setting aside the fact that we all have our individual characteristics, what are some universal qualities or values that one could expect to see in enlightened people? Of course, it can express itself in an infinite number of ways and an outer in terms of personality, but an absence of any conflict inside, an absence of any sense of division inside, definitely. A lack of... Um, being able to cause harm to any other being, you know, is always a, or themselves, of course, you know, is always a good sign. It should be an authentic lived thing, as you said. If they're walking their talk, it's uh, always going to be an authentic. It can express itself in any way at all in terms of personality and mind and quirks and traits and all of that. But somebody who is deeply at home in their own life, you know, somebody who is completely, from perhaps from the outside, would just appear completely normal, ordinary, just going about their life. The old, um, you know, before enlightenment, chop wood, carry water, and 
you know, <laughs> if anyone's saying oh, I'm so awakened, you know, then, then they're probably not. It becomes very ordinary and settled and authentic and so uh, certain, just hu- a certain home humility in my own you're alluding to. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, when it's truly deepened inside, there's a sense that I've always been this. I'm just coming to see it. I haven't done anything special. If I'm standing up there going, uh, uh, you know, where's my enlightenment flag? That's not a, an authentic, deep seeing. It's still further to go yet, let's just say. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, after I asked that question I, and you, you were answering it, I remembered that that's the question that Arjuna asked Krishna in the Gita. He said, you know, well, what are the signs of such a person? How does he walk? How does he sit? How does he talk? And all. And most of Krishna's answer had to do with inner considerations, you yeah. know, which wouldn't necessarily be evident from the outside. But then there were also some yeah. external things, like you mentioned, in terms of integrity and, and that kind of thing. Yeah, there's a, usually a total diminishment of fear. And suffering and uh, joy, you know, peace, love, well, that is ever deepening, as we were saying before. But an absence of feeling divided, you know, not not even seeing a division between the self and the ego, you know, that that even has disappeared. That that's the hallmark of an authentic awakening, uh, you know, in terms of being at peace. Really, the conflict comes from the sense of being divided, trying to get back to something. An interesting question came in from someone named Vesna in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, who asks, if we are all one, how can we explain the whole array of saints, angels, and even Jesus himself? One day I prayed to Jesus, and immediate relief was there. That made me even more confused. How can we be one and many, including saints, at the same time? It's a very good question. It's- it's very common as well, and it confused me for quite some time. But the formlessness that with the real being, the self that we are, is just one and infinite, and there isn't anything other than that. But it's like um, the old uh, analogy is that the, the manifested jewel um, or diamond, or whatever you want to say, is, is one and whole and complete, but it can have an infinite number of faces on it, facets on it, and each one appearing to be different, each one appearing to be unique. And again, if we look through the mind and the senses, all this always seems to be different. Every human being seems to be different. If we look at the surface characteristics, the way the self is appearing, you know, you like this to eat, I don't, you know, all of that. But at the same time, also underneath is this formless, unchanging reality that also has the ability to appear in all these infinite number of ways. There was a time when I got really obsessed with the word individual i've kind of got this thing about um etymology of words and it breaks down into indivi which is latin for indivisible and dual which means two so the individual is not a separate thing it's the unique way the self is appearing but still it's the indivisible one it's kind of one of those questions that really a teacher can't answer how does the self appear to be billions of forms infinite diversity when it's really just one i guess we could say when we look through our senses because our senses are seeing vibration and there could be infinite different vibrations in in this ocean it's always going to appear to be different but it isn't actually underneath when we really look as we were saying before tim freak likes to use the term univigil tim i like that yeah that's good yeah and i mean we could extend 
Vesna's question to the universe itself. Right now mm-hmm. on my screen, I'm looking at a picture of galaxies, and just I can see dozens of galaxies <laughs> in this photo that's on my background. I saw you. Uh, I heard you in one of the interviews say that you you got the pictures from the Hubble telescope. I've I, been obsessed with them ever since. I've got one now. Oh, good. I'll send you a whole collection if you like. I've got yeah, hundreds yeah. of them. They're just so beautiful. They really they? are. Yeah. And you know what Vesna asked about the multitude of individuals, you know, Jesus and angels and all that stuff, you could ask the same question about the universe itself. There's this all-pervading oneness, and yet there's this explosion of diversity, and yet they somehow are, are compatible with one another. Yeah, I think at some point in my, my own pathway, I, I did what everyone does and goes, well, there's no point praying because there's nothing else to pray to. And and then when I got desperate enough, I was on my knees praying. <laughs> and I actually developed a kind of a relationship with Christ in a very energetic way, as the questioner was saying. And it really taught me to appreciate the way the self is appearing as all this diversity and that in every great teacher that's walked this planet, it's been different and every student has been different and every blade of grass is different in appearance. It'll never be the same thing twice. It's the infinite nature of it. Yeah. I was listening to one of your recordings and you were talking about how, correct me if I'm not saying this right, how the body is not intelligent or something like that. Uh, It just sort of goes along. I thought about that. I was thinking, okay, now we would call Einstein intelligent and we would call Tesla intelligent or various intelligent people, but what's actually going on with them? What's the source of that intelligence? And the answer might be, well, yeah, there's this field of intelligence, and those individuals happen to be really happen to have been really good reflectors or expressions of that field. Yeah, what makes a rock a rock and a human being a human being? It's the form, isn't it, through which the self is expressing, and it's limited by the form. And even in any particular species, there's those that can appear to be geniuses, like in human beings, and there's all a range of that, isn't there? You can't have a conversation with a rock, but it is still the cell. <laughs> Although I know people who said they've had one. Yeah, I'll probably try it at some point. <laughs> yeah, so it's we can play around with this, but the whole universe is just this ever-evolving display of forms through which consciousness or intelligence is more and more fully expressed or is able to live more and more fully as a living reality. Yeah, you could say on manifest it's completely already itself, but when it takes an appearance or a shape, it's um, constantly looking for more self-awareness and self-expression. And as a human being, it can do that as an amoeba. It still has an experience, but not as complex as a human being. And whatever comes after human beings will probably be even more self-aware somehow. Yeah. So here's a couple of questions came in. Here's a mom question. Monica from Warsaw asks, I'm a mom of an 18 and 20-year-old, two kids, and at the very beginning of the awakening process, she is, I guess she's saying, discovering the non-duality teachings, going through pretty much the same process from depression to ecstasy due to meditation and self-inquiry. What I find the most difficult is to manifest presence with teenagers, questioning and resisting everything. (laughs) I'm putting the emphasis on there. So how did your path manifest in your parenting? Yeah, that was... um... I think that children are our biggest teachers quite often. 
And being a parent for me brought out all of my unworthiness completely. It seemed to be a very dualistic experience as we're talking about, you know, coming out of meditation in this deep bliss and then getting a teenager attitude coming back at you. The most direct way I've found is to feel how you're feeling in that moment. If you're some negative emotion arising due to this interaction, can you be authentically that in that moment? Instead of spiritualizing yourself, um, you know, I shouldn't be feeling this way. I should be feeling peaceful. Uh, and that is the disturbance, this idea that I shouldn't be how I am in this moment. And I think Christ is such a good example of this. If, if he was angry, he was angry. And he had his doubting moments and all of that. So there was this process at first of denying how I felt, as we all do. But then uh, kind of, okay, if I'm going to be what I am in this moment, that has to include feeling uh, really upset right now or whatever I'm feeling, anger, unworthy, and then allowing those emotions to be felt that began to finally disappear. Everyone is always trying to get away from what they're feeling in this moment as a human being. And awakening is going to, especially teenagers, are going to call you to feel that, definitely. Yeah. Ramdas said, if you think you're enlightened, go spend a week with your parents. But yeah. um, as a parent, you get <laughs> to do that all the time, you know? <laughs> Yeah, it's um, it's been a process for me, like anything, um, to understand that I'm worthy of respect and, you know, all of that. And I'm already adequate and good enough as the self and that I'm adequate and good enough as a parent. That most of what I think is going on in my head is not really how it is. But also respecting the fact that they are teenagers and they're going to do what teenagers do. So... Can I have this experience without allowing it to make me feel I'm not good enough inside? Can I just let this teenager be this teenager? Can I be myself in this moment? Which is, you know, a work in progress for most of us. You know how in Aikido, the martial art Aikido, how you, you use your opponent's mm -hmm. energy to kind of take advantage of the situation. Do you think there could be something like that in parenting where you can use your teenagers tendency to question everything as a great um, aid in helping both you and them go deeper in some way you can say oh this is great you're questioning everything let's sit down and question everything together and you know let's question this and that and question me question you question the government and you can somehow just get into their world and and uh, use that as a spiritual teaching in a way, I think if they're open to that, yes, um, you can. But I did a lot of using that homecoming fast and turning it to my advantage, as you were saying. But, okay, what, why, why do I really feel I need respect from this being? But of course we do. We want respect and all of that. But do I need to feel diminished if I don't get it? Because more than likely we're not going to get it at that point, you know, from that person. So in that way, I, I used what was coming at me. Does it make me any less of a being if I'm not, uh, if I'm feeling angry or upset? You know, can I forgive myself more for just, you know, feeling these negative emotions? And what happens when I stop saying should or shouldn't about myself? Or this teenager, definitely. It started to shift then that there was better communication between me and my children then. And I was clearer in that moment. I was just able to feel more what I was feeling. And of course, I would want them to treat me better, but I wasn't insisting on my own happiness coming from that, Yeah, my own peace. I suppose a little Byron Katie in here would be helpful too, you know? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, mom, you're a jerk. Well, let's see. Is it true that I'm a jerk? <laughs> yeah. It was kind of, uh, as we were saying before, the last thing a teenager wants is a really weird spiritual teacher for a mom. That's true. So it's kind of this questioning of my own authenticity coming from an outside echo inside. Do I really want to be this weird person as well? You know, I kind of dealt with it on those levels as well. Interesting. We've never had kids, so I haven't gone through all those challenges. They're great teachers. I'm sure. You can't get away from it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, at any time during this interview, if if a thought comes to your mind, then you think I'd like to talk about this, then just let me know and just we'll launch into it. It doesn't have to just be me doing that. So feel free to just, you know, shift gears and get into some other area or whatever as we go along. I kind of like where it's going. I'm I'm enjoying. Okay, good. It's jumping around a little bit, but we're, we're covering all the bases. Okay, this is a question, and it actually will lead me into another question I want to ask you. This is Rajiv from somewhere in India saying, is there a difference between consciousness and awareness, or are they the same? I think this is one of those tricky things about having so many teachers. um, Yeah, and how we define our terms. Yeah, absolutely. It it depends what you mean by it, but there's usually some term that a teacher will use for the, the separate sense of, self you know the ordinary mind so to speak and then another term they'll use for the um the real self reality whatever we're calling it and i think awareness and consciousness have just got so mixed up as to what they mean to each person you could say i found it more helpful to say sort of limited expression of consciousness and unlimited or limited expression of awareness and unlimited when the self thinks itself to be a separate being it expresses in a very limited way. When it realizes its unlimited nature, it will express in an unlimited way. People get kind of hung up on labels. And each teacher calls things different things. It's going to be confusing. It is confusing. So there's, I am aware of my hand, and that's an ordinary thing. But then we also refer to awareness or consciousness as having this unbounded, vast, oceanic quality which is not necessarily aware of anything. It's just this kind mm-hmm. of foundation of, of the universe. So again, it depends on in what context we're using the terms. It's so that they're both the same thing. The same awareness is looking at my hand just turns inwards to look at itself. It's not any different. And perhaps it just feels, it has an effect on the body then when it looks at itself. It's more expansive and feels better than when it looks at a thought, it experiences that thought then. So it's the same basic um, awareness or consciousness underneath. Right. Another thing, we've already talked about this a little bit, but, um, you know, after all my years of spiritual practice and all, all these years of doing this interview show, I still feel uncomfortable uh, when, you know, someone says, well, is so-and-so awakened? Uh, and it's like, I think, what do you mean by that exactly? Do you want to elaborate on that one a little bit? Because you use the term yourself on your website. You talk about becoming enlightened or becoming awakened and so on. And we're trying to talk here about standardizing terminology. I think there's various stages to it. You know, at first, the first stage will be to realize I'm not my mind. I'm not my thoughts. I'm not my experiences. You know, the the neti neti classic um, approach. From that place, there, there might be quite some pause then between awareness wanting to move further into seeing there's quite a really there's quite a relief for me at seeing i'm not my mind and not you know all of that we have to kind of qualify what we mean when we're asking if someone's awakened to me there was 
not really not linear stages but there seem to be several deepenings where first I'm not I see I'm not my mind and then I'll come to see at some point that um, I'm not a separate being at all I'll experience that somehow either through self-inquiry or in meditation and then there's a deeper seeing of everything else is also that self as well there isn't anything other than me I think it's kind of a little bit problematic to say somebody awakened because it depends where that person is at and what they've seen and what they can understand by the answer even. Yeah. And you know that old saying that the the Eskimos or the Inuit have like 50 words for snow or something because they're so familiar Mm -hmm. with snow. In the Indian tradition, there are actually many different words for various stages of awakening. They don't just throw everything into one one term. Yeah. Um, So, you know, our our English language is a little bit limited in that regard. Yeah, definitely. And I think ultimately what matters most is that we're not suffering anymore, that we've, we've found it. Even if there's negative emotions still arising for us and some egoic fragments coming up, are we feeling peace as well? Are we able to maintain that peace? That's the, that's the bottom line, isn't it, that we're all searching for? Can I go through my life without suffering? That's the fundamental thing. And one thing I like about your teaching is that you emphasize that it is natural to have such a realization. It's not rare. It doesn't need to be rare. It's everybody's birthright, you might say. It's not really far away. It's not like some long, distant, far-off thing that you're going to have to spend decades struggling to, to find. I think that gives people hope. Yeah, I've found my, my own awakening experience is very much the opposite of that, as we were saying before, that... I really literally experienced it being very, very difficult and taking a very long time, 25 years in the end. Of course, all that was necessary to, to get to the point where I realized that this isn't working for me. There must be a more yeah. direct way. If we're not even starting from the right premise, how can we ever expect to experience awakening to any degree? If we're already the infinitely powerful self, whether we realize it or not, and we're putting that infinite power behind this idea, awakening is really difficult, then we're going to experience that over and over again. And you you hear this from a lot of people, you know, I've been seeking for 30, 40 years and don't feel like I'm getting anywhere. So we start from the right place of, uh, as we were saying before, can that really be true if, if I am that already? Yeah, there's a couple of verses in the Gita. One is, uh, it says, no effort is lost and no obstacle exists. Even a little of this dharma removes great fear. So, I was listening to that particular verse this morning, actually. Oh, were you? Cool. Yeah, so there you go. I mean, it's saying any effort you put into this is worthwhile. And yeah. ultim- no obstacle exists. There may seem to be obstacles, but they're not insurmountable. Mm-hmm. And even a little of this removes great fear. Now, if you're going 40 years and you don't seem to be getting anywhere, then you might want to question your approach. Reevaluate the technique. <laughs> right. You know, if you, if, you, if you go up to bed tonight and you feel more peaceful than you did this morning, that's success and awakening to me. If you go through some traumatic event that would have really shaken you up and you cope with it better, that's success, isn't it? That's, that's actually really living it. Is this making a difference in my life in particular? And that's the bottom line. Related to this awakening question, Lori from somewhere in the U.S. says, can a person be awake and not know it? I haven't experienced that with with anyone, but I guess it's theoretically possible that they're just 
you know, not feeling divided inside. But I should imagine at some point it'll become obvious to them that there's something very different about the way they see the world to other other beings who are feeling, you know, a lot of fear and uh, all of that. So I think the first seeing can happen without realising what's, you know, the seeing that none of this is what I think it is and I'm not what I think I am. That can happen. I don't want to use, accidentally is not the right word, but just it can just happen spontaneously. But the integration of that takes some conscious... Even Ramana, you know, after his massive awakening, took him a good couple of years to kind of integrate that then. Yeah. Which you don't hear so much about. I heard Swami Sarvapiananda talk about that. He's the head of the Vedanta Society Center in New York that I mentioned earlier. He's been on Batgap. But he was saying, in terms of Ramana's experience, that, you know, he had this full-blown awakening, but it can take many years for it to fully permeate or integrate into all the structures of the, the mind-body system. And so that's why he sat in that cave on Arunachala for many years before he came out and started interacting with people. Yeah, and I don't particularly see how someone could go through that integration process to allow it to reflect through the mind and body without noticing that something is happening. Yeah. If they're not conscious of what is happening to them, they must know something is occurring. There's a saying in the Bible that it can sneak up like a thief in the night. The kingdom of heaven can come like a thief in the night. Some people have these blowout things like you did when you went to see Adya Shanti and you were crying for five hours. But uh, other people, there's this incremental sneaking up. And perhaps at some point something triggers that, oh, yeah, here it is. It's been here all along, but it grew so incrementally that I didn't notice. It's a really good point, actually. It's something I do want to talk about because people are expecting it to be one or the other. Am I going to have this massive moment, or is it going to be slow and gradual? And I think it was absolutely both for me. And I see, you know, people are looking for one or the other, and they're missing the progress they're making. There were these pivotal moments, like you just said, for me. But then there was also this one moment where I, I don't know. I think it might have been an argument with my children. Something happened, and I just would have been really upset and distraught about it for hours and hours afterwards. And there was just no response inside. There was a, right, will it be better if that didn't happen? You know, if we could resolve this peacefully. But all of a sudden, this time, there was just nothing that went into conflict inside. I was just pretty amazed because I don't know when that changed. I couldn't tell you the day and the time that, that happened. You know, and I was waiting for this big firework moment like everyone is. So I, I tried to think of other things that used to make me suffer. And then it, it was just the same thing. There was nothing in conflict inside. I was just meaning... If there was fear or anger or whatever I was feeling, I was able to feel it and peace at the same time. There was nothing that could reject what was happening in that moment. But when that fell away, I can't tell you exactly. So it's, it's going to be both. A lot of people experience both. This gradual, incremental ability to move through life. But there might also be some deeper moments as well in that. Yeah. And the way you function right now as you go through your day, I'm sure it's not this wowie zowie kind of, you know, overwhelming flashy <laughs> thing and you're not crying all day and, you know, drooling in ecstasy or anything like that. You know, you're just functioning normally. It happens Perhaps. every now and again, but for the most part, <laughs> if, if I focus on something like, like, like the geese, I was listening to the geese this morning and yeah. the tears and all of that. But yeah, it's funny. I mean, usually it's just like this. Right. And yet, if you somehow could shift from the way you were 10 years ago to the way you are now, instantly, boom, it, it probably would be quite quite a shock. Like Ramana, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Maybe. he just he couldn't Very function shocking. for a while. 
I always think I'm uh, quite lucky that it was very gradual for me. And I think we see more and more of that when somebody has a job and a family and they literally couldn't have one of those big explosive moments and take two months off work to assimilate it. It's just not, not going to work like that. Okay. So a little while ago, we were talking about Kundalini and you mentioned, uh, so a question came in about that from Sonia in Amsterdam. You spoke about stepping away from your Kundalini journey. Could you explain what occurred to you to make that decision or which situation made you decide to get off that journey? Uh, It was a combination of a couple of things. Firstly, there was greater, greater realization that I was trying to make something happen. I've been reading a couple of teachings that the Kundalini awakening would happen after realization rather than the way around. And I was kind of realizing more and more that uh, trying to raise the Kundalini just as it is wasn't working for me. What were you doing? Pranayama practices or something? uh, The the third eye meditation. And there was lots of energy moving and there were changes and, you know, these experiences happening. But again, it wasn't providing any lasting change in my life. I wasn't able to take it out into my experience. It was also aware of my addictive nature and the fact I was kind of getting addicted to that form of meditation, perhaps in an unhealthy way as well. So there's a combination of both of those. And the realization that it was still something I was trying to do. I was trying to do it. Yeah, I was going to just ask that. Like you were making an effort to make it happen as opposed to it happening spontaneously. Yeah, a lot of effort, yeah, a yeah. lot of efforting, Olympic gold medalist efforting you know (laughs) okay this isn't going to get me there i have to find some way to discharge this seeking 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 try 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 energy which was kind of getting in the way at that point yeah i've heard certain authorities say that that you shouldn't make an effort to raise kundalini or any such thing it'll just rise naturally of its own accord when the time is right but it could be actually dangerous to try to force Mm -hmm. it or something I don't think it's spoken about enough, really, that the the energetic component to awakening that happens perhaps after a deep seeing, and there is a very much uh, awakening of a lot of energy and um, having to, the body had to get used to that. There's a lot more energy than there used to be. It gradually settles down into, uh, there was this up and outward movement that then this downward thing that happened as well. I don't know whether... The right word is to say it was kind of moving outwards into my life and my relationships and all of that. There's a very real part of the process, and that to me is what takes the time and is needs to be worked with consciously. Do you feel like you have a lot of energy now that actually just gets applied practically in your daily life more than you normally would, you think? Yeah, it's gone both ways. I can actually sit still here and not feel like I should be doing something. I can just sit with a cup of tea and actually not feel I've got to get up and do something. But then when something needs to be done, it gets done, and it gets done a lot more effectively, a lot more efficiently. Rather embarrassingly, my body can handle all it needs to do without me in the way much better, Yeah, you know, without the thoughts in the way. Um, you know, more energy, better sleep, better quality of sleep, just... The body's just better in itself, really. That's great. I mean, that practical stuff is very valuable. In fact, there's another verse in the Gita for you, which is that yoga is skill in action. Yoga karma sukoshalam. It has a practical significance in terms of just functioning in life. Yeah, like I break down the side of the road instead of going into panic mode (laughs) out of fear. I just call the mechanic and 
without being swamped by all this unworthiness and fear and all of that. (laughs) I'm laughing because I remember a circumstance one time when I was driving along with my mother and the car broke down. And to tell you how checked out I was, I actually pulled out a a Shankar book and started reading it by the roadside as if that was going to somehow fix the car. Okay, if I just pray hard enough, <laughs> this, this tire is going to reinflate itself or something. You know? yeah. hey, and speaking of energy, you mentioned somewhere, I think it's on your website, a major benefit of attending satsang is to receive the silent transmission from the awakened teacher. When we spend time in the energy of someone who is already enlightened, their aura or energy field is radiating a high-frequency transmission that is picked up by the student to the degree to which they are ready to receive it. So you're referring to yourself there, I suppose. And a friend sent me that because he was a little concerned about that, but I've experienced that so many times that I think as long as it's understood in the proper context, um, there's nothing wrong with it. Sometimes it's not the proper context and there's this sort of I am special kind of thing and sit there and bask in my radiance. But okay. Yeah, it's a, it, like I experienced when I went to see Ajishanti. It was just something that happened and it wasn't a doing that anyone was doing. It was more like, well, the old analogy is if you strike a tuning fork and there's another one in the room, it's going to start singing too at the same frequency. Even for the average person to experience that there is possible to be conscious and not thinking that that is a profound change that they might experience maybe the first time when they're in satsang with with someone, but it's not anything that anyone is doing. They're not giving them anything. That's another reason why I tended to move away from the Shaktipat teaching and the Kundalini in the end, there was a, a lot of that going on in there. You know, I touch your third eye and you wake up and you don't have to do anything. And it's like, okay, it's a little bit more to it than that. Yeah. It also fosters a dependency on the teacher, um, you know, and a, kind of a specialness aura. Um, and also I would add that it's not just the teacher getting the other tuning forks going. It's, it's this sort of collective consciousness thing that happens, which um, the bigger the group, uh, the more coherent the group, the more powerful it can be. And that's what we're finding. We're finding the more people are having this uh, deepening of seeing, being able to live that, the more that somebody's coming into satsang the first time is finding it easier to believe that it's going to happen for them, that it can happen for them. Yeah. That, that collective consciousness effect, 100th monkey syndrome or whatever yeah. you want to call it. I was in a group one time of 8,000 people meditating for a couple of weeks, not a couple of weeks straight. And it, it was just really palpable, you know, just profound. Well, there's been those documented experiments with uh, the effect of crime in major cities when people pray collectively or uh, meditate together and they've actually seen a dropping in the crime rate at the spontaneous same time as, as that's going on. I was involved in those projects. We went, went to Washington, D.C. for a couple of weeks one time. And there was this big change and it, that was measured by sociologists and I spent three months in Iran just before the Shah left, and there, there was a kind of interesting thing going on there with a group. Collective consciousness we're just talking about, and the fact that people radiating a spiritual influence actually have an impact on society. So it's an interesting thing. Even just by their example, the, the, here's someone that's peaceful, you know, that is possible. I think there's more of that needed because, like we were saying before, there's... Uh, this sense in all of us that it, it's only for somebody who can leave their life or 
you know, somebody who is in the right lifetime or has the right karma and all of that. It's, it's necessary to have modern day examples. Yeah. So from the sublime to the ridiculous, here's something somebody sent me this morning, a quote from Woody Allen. Um, what if we we're all victims of a mass delusion and nothing exists? In that case, I definitely overpaid for my carpet. <laughs> I was got to throw a joke in. We have about half an hour left. Uh, what would we like to cover? There's your whole book, uh, you know, where you talk about the noumenon and the phenomena, and there are a bunch of chapters in your in your dissolving the ego book, uh, rec- you know, advocating s- specific practices. So, what do you feel would be the most um, fruitful? way of spending our time now during the remainder of this conversation? Um, well, meditation is a good thing to talk about. I think it's uh, uh, a misunderstood thing in itself. Uh, it certainly was for me that it's a, it's a doing or, you know, that that's the idea we all come to it with, that we're oh, going back to what we're saying about efforting. For me, the most direct form of meditation has also been the simplest, uh, as I'm describing in the book, and really looking at this idea that if thoughts arise during meditation or an emotion, that that's disturbing my meditation, that shouldn't be happening. Over and over again, I find people are expecting those things to stop, to go away during the meditation. And in fact, there can be an aid. Like you were saying about the Aikido, if a thought is arising in meditation, you can notice that there's awareness of that thought. So you can only see it because there's or even that sense of, restlessness inside i don't want to meditate today i just don't feel like it can only know that's there because the awareness is present first it's worth raising this point because maybe our meditation is already perfect we're just not looking at it in the right way if the phenomena arising of thoughts and emotions and experiences even deep states of peace none of that has to be a distraction to our meditation yeah i taught meditation for quite a few years and one of the things we always used to say is that anybody who can think can meditate and that even if we're in a noisy market or something we don't lose our ability to think and i myself have meditated in very noisy circumstances airports and all kinds of places and children um, or children yeah yeah, or (laughs) dogs i suppose if a person has a preconception that meditation is supposed to be some kind of blank serene state with no thoughts and no nothing and you're you know then they're going to be disappointed and perhaps struggle against it if if thoughts come up or feelings come up and all so it's partially it's a matter of getting a correct understanding of what it is and it's massively misunderstood as we were saying before there's all these different types of um, meditation but the most direct one has been the simplest and most effective for me and that there can be peace there even with thoughts arising Noticing that which is constant in our in the background of our experience, whichever way we're doing that. So in the book, we can call it awareness, we can call it silence, stillness, consciousness, are all words for the same thing. Whichever way we can to find that which is in the back of our experience is constant and unchanging and often unnoticed because it's constant and unchanging. Noticing attention always goes to that which is moving, like thoughts you know, and emotions. We could begin to contrast that, use those to recognize what's stable and unchanging. So that's how you used to meditate or still do? You would sit, close your eyes and just notice that which is unchanging as opposed to that which changes? Yeah, and when attention then wanders to thoughts, again, I would just gently bring it back when I could, back to that. 
um, even the absence, uh, the presence of thoughts rather and emotions can help you contrast to something that isn't changing and it isn't moving. But if I'm at war with my thoughts when I'm meditating, if I think they shouldn't be there, then I'm missing a golden opportunity in that. So sometimes that is more recognizable than what's in the background of silence. Sometimes it's just a sense of being aware. Sometimes it feels um, more like a field, you know, invisible field. Just noticing whichever way it's showing up for us in that moment, you know, presenting itself somehow, it must be because it's always here. It's the old movie screen analogy, you know, the the movies Mm. play on the screen and they overshadow it and you you get caught up in the movies, you don't see the screen. But what you're saying is a practice to see the screen despite the movies. And right back to where we were saying before that, we're always getting better at that. It's always a work in progress. Less and less each day I'm at war with my thoughts and my emotions. If I'm more and more just allowing them to be and feeling a deeper peace, then that's to me that's successful meditation. And as you said, it might be quite different to what most people think of as successful meditation. That all of that should disappear, or some you know thoughts should stop, or something like that. Mm. And if they're going to stop. It's never, if mine's going to go quiet, it's never going to happen by trying to get rid of it. It just makes it worse. There's a nice little quote from one of your books. You said, uh, well, I'll read the whole thing. The outer search is a, teach, a reaching, a trying, becoming, wanting, trying to find, hoping to achieve, or reaching a destination type of search. It involves a tremendous amount of effort and will not succeed. The inner search is a relaxation, a tuning into, a clarity of focus, a final seeing, an understanding, a recontextualization, a softening and inclusion, an allowing and a letting it be as it is. It is effortless and immediately bears fruit. So, yeah. I like that. I was watching um, a gardening show once uh, years and years ago, and it really struck me that... Um, it started off with this shot of this flower and you see in crisp detail this flower and and then the camera just kind of zoomed back out and you could see the whole garden but you couldn't see any one particular thing in any detail and it was just kind of like it struck me that's what meditation is it's just kind of more of a zooming out you know and, and taking in the whole context of it do you have an explanation as to why thoughts come up in meditation. I mean, we don't want them to, let's say. We sit down, we think, I'd just like to settle into silence here and enjoy that. And next thing you know, you're thinking about all kinds of things that are happening in your life. Uh, What causes them to come up, even when we would just assume they didn't? The the root cause that I found in my own life was the belief that there actually are separate objects to think about. You know, back to what we were saying before, that there actually is a world full of other beings you know, they'll always appear to be. But if I'm deeply feeling I'm a separate being, living in a world with other beings and things that can affect me and harm me and hurt me, then, and that perhaps I might be wanting things from those beings like respect, etc., that's going to fuel the thought stream. Um, so that fundamentally, but also because we are, uh, to some degree, always being inauthentic as human beings, we're always saying, uh, I shouldn't be thinking in this moment I shouldn't be there should be less thoughts or we're denying our experience in that moment somehow it's um it's usually a combination of those that the the sense of being a separate being is leading this idea that everything else is other than me 
separate to me, which fuels the thought stream. So you're saying, are you saying that if you could more deeply appreciate that there are no separate beings and that we're all one, then the mind would automatically get quieter? Yeah, just just to um, go deeper into each moment to, to really more experience the essence of what everything is that comes with a quietness and a peace because um, we're less, we're not making thoughts wrong, but we're less and less referencing them to, to understand the world. And the deeper we go into this moment to experience it, there's going to be more of an experience of what the essence of everything is, which is that silent formlessness. So we're not trying to make minds stop and we're also not making that way of seeing the world wrong. <clears throat> we're just saying, well, is there, is there a deeper way to experience this moment? I'm not sure which is the cart and which the horse here, because um, perhaps, you know, because you have a quieter mind and you tend to see the unity of everything and all. I mean, well, because you tend to see the unity of everything, uh, your mind is naturally quieter. It sort of goes along with that perspective, whereas somebody who is, to quote the Gita again, whose mind is many branched and endlessly diverse and irresolute, it's naturally a noisy mind, and they are not seeing the oneness of everything. I don't know if you could have a noisy mind and see the oneness of everything. It, the two are interconnected. Yeah, and it's, it's simply the idea that it's one or the other of those that disturbs us. If I could just let my noisy mind be as it is in this moment and also see if there is more to experience in this moment about myself and the world then I'm not going to be fighting against what is. And it's that fighting against what is that causes it. Makes it even noisier, yeah. And as Krishna said, you know, Arjuna said to him, I don't think I can meditate like you're telling me to. My mind's all over the place. And Krishna just really compassionately says, well, just give it a go. No effort is wasted. And just, you know, that that's, uh, we can always, it's no, there's no finish line. That's perhaps the most important thing to to see with this in terms of we can always go deeper into this moment and always be more authentic about who we are in this moment. Yeah, and you don't want to try to suppress the the agitations of the mind. You know, that, that verse from the Yoga mm-hmm. Sutras, that, that yoga is the cessation of the, chit, the vrittis or the agitations. Our of, mental modifications. Yeah, um, it, they settle down. But let, let's say you have a pail of water or a swimming pool or something, it has waves on it, and you want to stop the waves. If you start pressing on the waves to get them to stop, you're actually going to create more waves. Yeah, I'm standing in the still water and I'm flapping my arms around, wondering why it's disturbed. <laughs> so just, just let it be as it is. You know, let your mind be exactly as it is in this moment. Somehow, I did it myself um, as well as we all do, come to meditation with this idea that the idea of meditation is to stop the mind. Because we've all heard that there is this state where there aren't any thoughts and peace and love and joy. But we don't... Um, hear about what that person did to achieve that. that yeah. They didn't at all try to be in opposition with anything, especially the mind. I think that what you just described is the sort of, um, it's, it's a description of the way the mind is once it has settled. It's not a description of how to settle the mind. Mm-hmm. You know, you, yeah. tr- you try to suppress the fluctuations, you're only going to create more. But if you can settle into a deep state, then the fluctuations will just sort of, you know, it's just a couple of ideas that really get in our way, and that's that the the presence of thoughts is going to diminish my experience. But I noticed one time, um, 
we've been lost in thoughts for ages. And they, when I actually sort of came back into clarity, there was a bliss there. And I looked at that, well, why, why is it blissful? And because I was just completely absorbed in thoughts, I wasn't fighting that at all, mm. at all. And there was a peace and a bliss. Natural, yeah. I wasn't thinking I shouldn't be thinking or something. <laughs> weren't <laughs> battling with yourself. Yeah. One thought I just wanted to throw in here, it's been occurring to me the last few minutes, is that I, one thing I, one reason I think maybe thoughts arise in meditation is that, you know, the physiology has all these impressions in it. Or they call them, vrit- not vrittis. Um, yeah, samskaras? Samskaras, yeah. Or, or vasanas. You know, I, I always get mm. those two words mixed up. But all these impressions. And meditation is actually very conducive to the loosening up and release of those impressions. But when they start to release, then there's a bubbling up of, of mental activity, right? Because mind and body are interrelated. So we start having and all, the all body. this... It very literally stores that stuff in the tissues as well. You know, there's a very physical component so that's got to come to the surface, like you said, in thought forms and emotions, and even just a deep sense of tension in the body will be felt. So if we're coming to our meditation with the idea that we, our mind's supposed to be getting quieter and all this stuff needs to arise, it's just not going to work. You know, that's why I think meditation is a fundamental thing if that's, if we're coming to that from the right perspective, it's going to be so much easier. And if we resist that, we're actually resisting uh, a natural beneficial result of meditation, which is a clearing out of those impressions. Yeah, yeah exactly. And to, to realize that every sage that's walked the planet must have gone through that exact same process, Yeah, you know, of, of this stuff just coming up and up. Yep, you say that here. You say, as you walk the pathway, know that every enlightened sage that ever walked the planet is with you. Every saint is for you. Every master is beside you. All those that have done it are supporting you in unseen ways, and grace is helping you as you make each step. Very true. It's good, it's good to remember that because there, you know, in my own awakening, there were some very dark times. Actually, for a while, I was obsessed with St. John of the Cross and his work on the dark night of the soul those horribly desperate moments where you feel completely cut off from anything divine at all. And just to, uh, to even work with those, to embrace those to whatever degree you can when they happen. Yeah. And as George Harrison sang, all things must pass. So mm-hmm. if you feel like you're going through a dark night, it's not going to last forever. Yeah. And I came to see as horrible as they are, there is always some, clearing away afterwards there is always some deeper peace afterwards and um i also came to see they'll last as long as i resist them you know if i if i no no because nobody wants to feel that way in desperate and um absolute despair and despondency but if we're feeling it we don't have to maybe we can fight it a little bit less this time or something yeah we might be prolonging it if we fight it yeah yeah the question just came in that relates to what we've been discussing. Is this from John Andrew in Dublin, who asks, my understanding is that thoughts depend on there being a subject and an object, both of which are actually false. Hence, thoughts should not arise for an enlightened person. What do you think about this? It's uh, one of those yes and no questions. That There's always going to be some of those, um, you know, theoretically, there's nothing to think about at all. You know, that's that is the natural state that there's only the one formless being 
but we're still experiencing that through a human body and there's going to be some latent impressions, uh, as you were saying, to, that need to come to the surface. Um, somewhere that I'm seeking something in terms of still, I might be looking for respect or security or something, feeling that I'm missing something. So the thought stream will continue there for a while. So yes and no, in both of those are true. I think if a person is alive, they're going to be having some thoughts because if they're acting, thought precedes action. It's just that an ordinary person has all kinds of thoughts that are not relevant to their situation, kind of like a radio tuning in 10 channels at once or something. Whereas we could say a quote unquote enlightened person, the thought stream has become very efficient and is not cluttered with extraneous noise. And also how you how what relationship are you in with those thoughts? Are they just another phenomena arising? Or are they being are they my thoughts? Are they happening to me? Am I experiencing them? Are they impacting me? And there's a very large experiential difference between those. We're not running around getting upset because the rain's falling out of the sky. <laughs> That's true. But we've all because this idea that these are my thoughts and I'm thinking. And if we investigate that there can be thoughts present and it can be a really noisy mind. And it's just another thing that's happening in this moment rather than it's impacting me personally as a separate being. Good. Tell us about the books you've written and tell us about what you do with people. I know you have like a weekly online satsang on Zoom or something that I presume anybody can tune into. And uh, I'm sure there's information about that on your website. Tell us... uh, you know, what you have to offer in that regard that people can interact with. There's currently two free satsangs a week with the pandemic, but we are going back to just one per week. They're open to anybody to join. They're always free. There is uh, intensives that we do. We'll have a satsang, but we'll also have uh, some guided self-inquiry, meditation, and generally some silent sitting as well. We've got an online virtual retreat, which is the first one we've done this way again with the pandemic that's in September and uh, really for those that really kind of want to speed it up we do the Dissolving the Ego course which is a four-week course again you can start you can join from anywhere but really just to the, the fundamentals to get the fundamentals across that most of which we've discussed today starting from the right place also what, what meditation is in its most effective teaching some of the practices in the book as well There's a whole range, really, of what everybody's ready for. On my YouTube channel, there is also a core teachings playlist of three satsangs we did on contemplation, self-inquiry and meditation, which are kind of the basics of what I'm talking about. Again, from my own experience of what helped me, what worked best for me, fastest. And I'll link to those things from your page on BatGap, to your website and to your YouTube channel. So what I gather is that there's Plenty of stuff that people can do without any cost. And then there are some more intensive things for which you charge an admission fee because you need to support yourself. Yeah, I try to keep the prices as low as possible. But like you say, you've got to support yourself. But yeah, there's a lot of stuff on there for free. There's hundreds of satsangs, I think, now on the YouTube channel as well, all free. Free stuff on the website as well. And now I just want to say thanks for having me on. I've really, really enjoyed it. And um it's been a fun experience, so thank you. Yeah, me too. Well, I just wanted to ask you, I don't mean to spring this on you at the end, but that friend of mine who sent in a few questions, he said, why does she call herself the Northern Guru? He said, how would it sound if Rupert Spira called himself the Southern Guru? And I don't know, maybe he should. 
Do you get any blowback about that? It was just something we did for a while, really, just to to raise awareness, because there was a time here where there wasn't really anyone teaching, sort of direct teaching in this part of the north uh-huh. of England. It just kind of caught on as a just catchphrase, a catchphrase I guess, yeah. Yeah. All right. yeah. Yeah, I didn't mean to give you any trouble with that. Um, no, it's fine. <laughs> All good. You know, I have a, a little bit of an aversion to the term direct teaching in a way, because sometimes when people use that phrase, they're saying things like, you're already enlightened, you don't need to do anything, you know, there is no person, there's, no, you know, blah, 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 teachings are unnecessary, practices are unnecessary, and so on. That really does get me a little, that's such a good point to, to talk about, I'm a bit passionate about that. I mean, yes, you might talk to someone, someone who's really just trying to come out the idea of a separate being, you might say something like that then in a satsang, but I don't know, spirituality's gone to the complete other end of the scale and none of this is real and you don't need to do anything about it. And it's that line between enlightenment and delusion that's been crossed there, hasn't it, where I'm just in avoidance of everything and bypassing my entire, um, when all my stuff's coming up here. So you've got me passionate about it. It's um, it, it was fashionable for a while and hopefully it's going away now. Yeah, hopefully. Say. Well, it's like you say, there's a kind of a both-and way of doing it, where you can acknowledge those teachings, like I was saying earlier, the Mandukya Upanishad, or the kind of stuff you say in your reality checkbook, and, um, you know, you can go deeply into that, but in the same breath, you kind of have to acknowledge that there's also this world of diversity, and and the sort of the totality is kind of the inclusion of both, it's not either-or. If somebody deeply feels they're a separate being still, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to try and convince them otherwise. And I'll meet them wherever they're at. And I think that if they need help feeling, you know, working with an emotion that's really troubling them, I'll absolutely work with that. And that's what's real for them in that moment. That's where they are. And that's what they need help with. And to just kind of say, well, sorry, that's, that's just a, a, a remnant of an old state of consciousness. It's not real. Get over it. It's just not helpful, is it? Yeah, not helpful. And I think compassion and love, as awakening deepens, it wants to meet someone exactly where they are. It's not going to be in denial of anyone's experience. There's a saying in India that when the mango fruits are ripe, the branches bend down so that people can pick them easily. Yeah, it relates to the idea of just meeting people at whatever level they're at and being able to offer something to them there. Yeah, and that that should be the teaching I'm describing is direct in that way, not necessarily direct as in there is only the self and nothing else exists. There is a place for speaking like that, obviously, like in that book, that reality check, but most of what I do is on a, a very different level as well. You know, there'd be a lot of time spent helping people with karmic patterns that are coming up and to just say, well, you were never a separate being is, is not going to help them in that moment. You might be able to get to that afterwards, after you've worked with, with the emotion and the all of that, but you know, start from where you're at with, with that person. It's, it's what love wants to do, isn't it? What love would do. Yeah, beautiful. And there's some nice examples of that in, in your YouTube videos that I was listening to, just sort of, I don't know, one lady was being gypped out of her inheritance by her her mother or something. She was pretty upset about that. And I thought you dealt with it quite nicely. You just didn't, you didn't say, well, there is no mother, there is no inheritance, you know. So <laughs> you just kind of like met her on her own level and, and dealt with it. I mean, don't get me wrong, Rick, I did that in my own awakening. None of this is real. I don't have to deal with my stuff, you know. But after a while, that, that doesn't, um, it's not fulfilling enough. Love, love wants to embrace everything. 
um, and meet everyone where they're at. And that person having that emotion come up, it is the self too, and it should be respected as the self appearing right that way in that moment. Good. Nice. Well, thank you, Helen, for what it's worth my saying it. I think you have a very mature understanding or approach to to spirituality. It it kind of is very inclusive, and, and I really appreciate that. Thank you. That's nice to hear. The reason for all of this is to help people, isn't it? And if it's not doing that, then it's got to be reevaluated. Exactly. It's not to get out of life or anything. It's to be able to live life fully. I finally feel like I can do that. I finally feel at home in my life, whatever that is. You know, I think everyone should be able to have that. Great. All right. Well, thank you so much. Um, I just want to uh, say to those who are listening or watching that I do one of these every week. And as I said in the beginning, there are hundreds of them in the can, so to speak, um, and many more planned. Next week, I'll be speaking with a fellow in Australia who is one of um, a close student of Sailor Bob Adamson. Uh, even when I first started this show, Sailor Bob was feeling like he was too old to do interviews, so didn't get to interview him. But this fellow um, seemed to really be immersed in his teaching and perhaps even, well, we'll see when I talk to him. Uh, in any case, that'll be next Saturday. These um, interviews are streamed live. And as you've noticed, people can send in questions during them. And of course, then after a few days, the live one comes down and they, they, um, the permanent one goes up. Um, so on the, there's an upcoming interviews page on batgap.com where you can see the, uh, the schedule and also the form through which you can submit questions. You can even do that before an interview, days before if you want to, and we'll save it until the interview comes. Uh, there's also a place you can subscribe to be notified by email when a new one is posted. Um, there's a place to subscribe to the audio podcast on various podcasting platforms. And what I mentioned the donation button in the beginning. What else? There's, um, I don't know, a few things. Just explore the menu and you'll, you'll see what's there. So, so thanks. Thanks again, Helen. Thank you very much. It's been lovely. Yeah. Have a good evening. And, um, We'll be in touch. If you want, I'll send you those galaxy pictures. Yes, please. I'd love that, yeah. I'll do that. Thank you, everybody. See you for the next one. Bye-bye.